The scripture for today comes from the book of Philemon. It is the letter of Philemon. So listen for the word of God. Paul, a prisoner of Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, and Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love, and I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. One more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations, these words elicit in our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, and may they lead us to give you glory and to serve you in all that we do and say. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. For the fourth time in seven years, we spent our vacation in a rented house, this time for two weeks, overlooking a wharf 
on a harbor in Swan's Island, Maine, a remote island of 330 residents whose primary livelihood is lobster fishing, the only real economic activity on the island. From our upstairs bedroom, we could see 30 boats a day leave about 4 a.m. and return about 2 or 3 p.m., with an average of four to 500 pounds of lobster per boat per day, around 15,000 pounds to be hauled off the next morning by the refrigerated truck that comes across the ferry each day. We went to the pancake breakfast at the Odd Fellows Hall. We bought our food from the one-room market on the island. We went to the top of the lighthouse and we walked the many trails throughout this remotest of places. And of course, we read. I finished a lengthy novel entitled City on Fire that I've been reading since October, a novel about New York in the 1970s, which is when I lived there. I found in recent years that nearly all of my reading consists actually of rereading material that I read in high school or college, revisiting these pieces now with the wisdom and burden of years that were unavailable to me at the time they were first assigned. Thus last this month, I read, or in some instances reread, Camus' The Stranger, Beckett's Waiting for Godot, Plato's Republic, three short stories by Melville, and 20 or so by Hemingway. I have no earthly idea why anyone would want to go on vacation with me. <laughs> Occasionally we would steal away to the village library where we could reconnect with the outside world through Wi-Fi. On one such occasion I read an article on nostalgia by Garrison Keillor in the New York Times. Many of you know that Keillor retired earlier this summer from a Prairie Home Companion, so nostalgia is on his mind. He writes, I loved the old America where children roamed the neighborhood unsupervised and you hitchhiked and got to meet strangers. You knew people's jobs then. My Uncle Lawrence fixed cars. My dad was a carpenter. Uncle Aldridge was a small-town doctor. I once watched him at the supper table extract a fishing lure from the eyebrow of a weeping boy while the rest of us sat and ate our meatloaf and string beans. <laughs> Work was sociable then, he writes. People watched you and commented. Now everybody is in media. Maybe they're in charge of platform resource imaging or program development. They work in cubicles and nobody really knows what they do. It's not just Garrison Keillor who's giving voice to nostalgia these days. Closer to home, friend of this congregation and my friend Rabbi Jack Moline voices a similar appreciation for the past. I grew up in the 50s, Jack writes. I remember where I was when JFK was shot. I rode my Schwinn all over creation without a helmet. 
My father bought a house and provided for his family by running a small business. And my mother stayed home and took care of the house. I owned every Smothers Brothers record ever recorded. My only crises had to do with dandruff and acne and whether the Cubs were ever going to break 500, which of course they are doing this year. But Jack points out that not everyone has such plenteous reasons for memories as fond as Keeler's or his or ours. Again, he writes, The indulgences heaped on me were the result of hard work, dumb luck, and privilege by a lot of people around me. Life was great for me, able-bodied, white, straight, middle class, and educated, with an allowance of a buck or two a week and someone to provide for my every need. Jack goes on to point out that in the idyllic America in which he was raised, a person in a wheelchair couldn't visit a museum. A person of color had to go around back to buy the same sandwich a white woman would be served on a gleaming porcelain plate and a loveless marriage or an address across the tracks was often a life sentence. As wonderful as the past was in our nation, it wasn't wonderful for everyone all of the time. Yet most of us acknowledge that many of the changes that have occurred during our lifetimes have been for the better. America is great, Jack writes, because we haven't been satisfied with an elite definition of happiness that excludes more than half the population. While I may have read a lot of pages on vacation, I've only placed before you today two pages, 459 words, though together, as Casey indicated, they constitute an entire book of the Bible. The book is Philemon, and in many ways, it is a book about change. The degree of change, the pace of change, the embracing of change, much of which arises up from within our Christian faith. As I indicated in our announcements, our adult education theme this year is navigating the seas of change. In many ways, there is no more important topic facing us as individuals and a society today. A bit of background on the text. Philemon is a letter that the Apostle Paul from prison writes, assisted by his understudy Timothy. He addresses the letter to Philemon, a man whom Paul has earlier led to Christian faith and who has now become the leader of a congregation that Paul has likely founded. The letter is also addressed to two other church leaders, a woman named Aphia and a man named Archippus. It is also addressed to the entire congregation. 
Thus, while Philemon is the only letter that Paul addresses specifically to an individual, he clearly expects this letter to be read before the congregation and to speak to their life together as a community. We also learn from the letter that Philemon himself has a home that's large enough to host on a regular basis the house church of 40 or 50 members who constitute it. And his home is large enough to have a guest bedroom. In addition, Philemon is prosperous enough to own at least one slave whose name is Onesimus. Onesimus has run away from Philemon. He has found or been found by Paul. And like his owner, he has become a Christian under Paul's tutelage. Thus, Paul finds himself responsible for the faith and nurture of two people, Philemon, the church leader, and Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave. Now, in addition to the background to these characters, it's important for us to know a little bit about slavery in the Greco-Roman world. Slavery was widespread. It was usually based on the capture of territory. In a sense, slaves were POWs, rather than being based on racial identity or subjugation. Slavery was almost impossible to overthrow in the Greco-Roman world except by violence or war, another invading army coming to town. A runaway slave was subject to arrest, punishment, imprisonment, whipping, and in some cases even crucifixion. And people who harbored runaway slaves were liable as well. In this situation, in which Paul is imprisoned for his own minority religious views, Paul decides to try to bring about a resolution and reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. In a conversation to which we are not privy, Paul persuades Onesimus voluntarily to return to Philemon. In the letter that is before us, Paul urges Philemon to accept Onesimus back, not simply as a fugitive slave, not even as a slave at all, but as a fellow Christian, the fellow Christian that Onesimus has become. Paul writes, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, Philemon, to do your duty, I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become. I am sending him back. That is, I am sending my own heart back to you. Paul even offers to make financial restitution Philemon has suffered because of Onesimus' departure. Thus, in his entreaty to Philemon, Paul appeals 
to the best in Philemon's character as a Christian and to the fact that he, Onesimus, and Philemon have become a part of the same family, being members of the same faith and members of the same congregation. Paul does not require that Philemon grant Onesimus his freedom, though as his spiritual mentor, Paul apparently feels that he could institute that requirement. Paul neither endorses nor critiques the slave system under which they all operate. Paul makes his appeal for change to the best traits in Philemon, his conscience, his character, and his faith. Now, as you might imagine, this letter has had a controversial reception among Christians throughout the 20 centuries of Christian history. Pro-slavery theologians and preachers in the antebellum South referred to the letter as the Pauline Mandate, a biblical sanction for slavery. Plantation owners cited the book in support of the fugitive slave law. Abolitionists, on the other hand, countered that nowhere does the book say that Onesimus is actually a slave. And thus they argued that Onesimus and Philemon are actually blood brothers who have become estranged. And Philemon is trying to restore their relationship, not only as blood brothers, but as brothers in the Lord. Brothers on the basis of their newfound faith. This is an argument that has some merit in the text. Yet scholars in recent years have returned to seeing the book as one of the ways in which the New Testament, including Paul, subtly undercut the concept that one human being is superior to another, that one human being has rights over another, that one human being can own another by emphasizing the familial terms of endearment within the letter, brother, sister, father, child. They see this letter as an example of Paul's unwillingness to canonize the social roles in his environment as a letter that subtly challenges the institution of slavery. As such, it is possible to see within this letter the seeds of significant human change to which we aspire and out of which we seek to live today. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So in the nostalgia which some of us feel and in the change which all of us face, what can this very shortest of New Testament books teach us today? 
I want to share three very brief things in no particular order. First, whether Paul realizes it or not, Paul is planting the seeds of a major social change. The idea that all people should be free and that all people should be considered equal in the flesh and in the Lord. This is a radical idea in human history. Christianity did not invent the idea, and it has in many, and Christianity in our many historical forms has often failed to realize this ideal and has often been opposed to it. But the seeds of freedom and equality are present in the Christian faith. I ask you, do not ever forget that. Do not ever fail to express that when you encounter expressions of the Christian faith that seem intent on denying it. Do not ever refrain from defending Christianity by pointing to these seeds. Freedom and equality are at the heart of Christian faith. Second, again, whether Paul realizes it or not, Paul is planting these seeds of change without advocating the immediate use of violence. In my understanding of history, refraining from violence is not always possible. And therefore, in my theology, I do not believe that such restraint always represents the right choice. Indeed, the gaining of independence for our, no, for our own nation and the putting to bed the scourge of slavery both were accomplished through violence. But the letter to Philemon stands as a firm and eloquent witness that according to the Christian faith, persuasion, diplomacy, nonviolence, are always the first and preferred choice. Those of you, those many of you who work in the military, know this better than the rest of us because you experience it personally. And for the rest of us, it's more academic or intellectual. But the letter to Philemon is a masterpiece, a masterpiece of the human need and the divine sanction for diplomacy. And third, as readers of the letter, it is interesting that we do not hear the voices of either Philemon or Onesimus. We do not even know what the outcome of this letter was. But the silence of these two voices serves as an ironic reminder to us that for true resolution to occur, that for true reconciliation to be reached, 
all voices need the freedom to speak and all ears need to listen. In one of the short stories I read on vacation, Benito Serino, one of the main characters in the story, the slave Babo, never speaks. His voice is never heard, even though his actions and leadership of a slave insurrection drive the entire plot. Melville published this story in the popular magazine Putnam's over three months in 1855. It was Melville's own way of crying out to his 19th century American audience to listen to the voices of those who do not have voice, to listen to the voices of the enslaved, perhaps even in hopes of averting the way that slavery came to an end ten years later. To achieve the kind of reconciliation and resolution of which Paul seeks, the kind of resolution and reconciliation that we seek in our nation, in our relationships, in our world today, every voice must speak. And every voice must be heard. In his evocation of the world of his childhood, Garrison Keillor writes, Style is not what keeps us going. We survive by virtue of people extending themselves, welcoming the young, showing sympathy for the suffering, taking pleasure in each other's good fortune. This same spirit emanates, almost levitates up from the words of Philemon. No longer as a slave, but as more than a slave. As a beloved brother in the flesh and in the Lord. If we allow it, this spirit can become a part of who we are. Amen.